Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So hi, welcome back to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. Um, and for this week, we have um, Mireya Lupercio. Uh, their pronouns are she and her. Their guest possession is they are. Uh, she's a mental health therapist um, who has a master's in social work. Uh, Mireya is an experienced mental health therapist uh, with a demonstrated history of working in nonprofit organizations. Mireya provides a bilingual bicultural therapeutic environment for adolescents and adults. Mireya works uh, with a diverse group of clients and range of diagnoses. Um, Mireya also has strengths working with first-generation stressors, anxiety, depression, ADHD, PTSD, domestic violence, and postpartum depression. She's a Mexican-American first-generation um, college student, right? Welcome, Mireya. Hi, how are you guys? Pretty good. We're excited to um, have you uh, on our list. We've been meeting or wanting to put this episode to record and a lot of things happen in between, but we're glad that you're here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Mireya, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing, your educational journey? What was that like for you? Yeah, so I grew up, um, again, in a Mexican household, was predominantly raised in, or mainly raised in um, Los Angeles, California. Um, Yep, grew up in, in, in this area called Cypress Park, very small, yet big family. We were very close. Um, I have four, three, three siblings. Um, I'm the second child and I'm actually the only one that ended up going to college um, and pursuing her master's degree in social work. And I think it kind of just, um, the values and beliefs around social work ties into a lot of the work that I did in my family and kind of was the caretaker and kind of the advocate and doing the, the advocate one and doing the interpretation for my family and doing all that, you know, um, that work in, in the family. So um, then at age 14, my dad got promoted in his job and we ended up moving to Raleigh, North Carolina, which was like a huge culture shock. Uh, Because then now we ended up living in a predominantly white neighborhood. And that within itself was just um, very difficult for me because, again, school wasn't a priority when I was living in in L.A. I think there was a lot of um, uh, this idea, right, that, you know, I would get pregnant at a young age and wouldn't finish school and um, just all those misconceptions that a lot of people have or um, so... Anyways, I ended up going um, to community college. Was I was also helping raise my two younger siblings while my parents worked full time, and so um, I did have to work um, full time and go to school full time and also be the caretaker at home. So that I ended up being at a community college for six years. Um, during those six years, it was very difficult because um, I struggled a lot with school. Um, one of the things that went undiagnosed growing up was ADHD for me. Um, I ended up finding out that I had ADHD 
later on when I was in grad school. Um, and that's something that I kind of been trying to, or how to learn how to manage on my own. So um, six years in school, ended up pulling my grades, decided to go to um, pursue my bachelor's in social work. And that's how I ended up in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, so in, in, in this state, if you have your, um, your bachelor's in social work, you can get your master's degree in social work in a year. So I ended up push, pushing through and got my master's in social work. And um, my degree is focused in community management and community um, work as well as policy practice. So I ended up going to Washington, D.C. for three months and was running a campaign um, out there for children who work in the field. Um, and did a lot of work around farm workers while I was also in grad school um, and, you know, community organizing and all that fun stuff um, and decided that it, the, the political climate changed out there. So I decided to come back and pursue my, um, my clinical part of social work and I'm working towards being fully licensed. So God willing, I will be fully licensed in June. So that's, that's my whole story there. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And uh, when you reached out uh, to us, uh, we actually met through social media and you reached out to us and you asked us about, you know, you really wanting to talk more about uh, the topic of imposter syndrome. Um, and Ariana and I have sort of talked about it little with every guest, but we haven't created a whole full episode on imposter syndrome. And most of it is because Ariana and I have a different relationship with imposter syndrome, and we wanted to wait until we had a guest who was able to talk about it, um, like to like that wanted to center and talk about imposter syndrome in general. So can you tell us about what is imposter syndrome and also like what is your relationship or your work with imposter syndrome? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of um, uh, definitions of what imposter syndrome, but basically what it what it means is like this sense of not belonging, right? Believing, um, it's it's almost like a, a fear, right, of not being able to be enough or not being able to succeed. Um, so um, this can also be in relationships. It can be in your career. It can be in education. Um, or when the success does happen, it's almost like you have a hard time accepting your accomplishments. So it's almost like this, you know, it's like you are an imposter in this setting um, or whatever role you're playing, right? And so it's almost like a fear that someone's gonna recognize or one day someone's gonna expose you, right? And, and call you out. Um, and then so it's almost like you're not living in the moment. You're not in the present. You're not able to to see your successes or your accomplishments. It's almost like you're just constantly like in the future or in the past. Um, and of course, you know, that the imposter syndrome is developed um, through some sort of experience or something that happened in our lifetime um, that kind of adds to those, to those symptoms, right? Of, of, of what it would seem like anxiety over time. Um, my experience with imposter syndrome, I think it, again, it kind of comes from that um, idea of I, one, I think it, had, it has a lot to do with my ADHD um, and having to work twice as hard because, you know, when, when you have ADHD, you are on medication that helps you to focus and, you know, you're able to learn more at, at the speed or the level that you're supposed to and, and be able to maintain focus and whatnot versus 
being off medication, I'm unfocused. It takes me longer to finish through with the work that I need to. Um, so I was growing up, I constantly was fidgeting. I was very impulsive unfocused. And so I just could not retain the information that was being taught. And so um, the negative attention was being often called out on, or they would say that, you know, that is mi traviesa, you know, stay still. Um, porque no aprende. So they would, you know, constantly these messages were being created. And so when I was finally in a setting, right, where I was working really hard, it was almost like, gosh, when am I going to get caught up? Like, you know, called out for for what I'm doing here. Um, but also in a sense, you know, I think a lot of it happened for me when I was in um, undergrad and being in a predominantly white college, um, kind of feeling like I didn't belong in that place or in that setting. It was almost like I wasn't just serving and I was, I was here um, with my classmates or my peers, right? Because it was, it was luck. It just happened to be that they needed that brown person, right? And, in that setting. So, um, and I, I still struggle with this. Um, there's times that I have to check myself, right? And remind myself that I am deserving of the spot, but people are also deserving of having me here and in this place, right? Like just as much as I can learn from them, they can learn from me. Um, so that has been my experience with imposter syndrome. Yeah, it's a lot about reframing, you know, your mindset, your approach, how you receive others, you know, possible interactions with you, right? Um, or lack thereof. Um, uh, and like Patricia mentioned, I have a different um, experience with imposter syndrome just because I'm used to always being the, not, I'm always used to growing up in Marin County and growing up in Sonoma County, I'm used to not, you know, quote unquote belonging. Um, in high school, even we were half Latinos, half, you know, Caucasians. And um, I just felt like that was, you know, what that the case, right? And it was learning to lean on people who looked like me or may have not looked like me, but learning how to, you know, use my resources to be able to get make my way through just as um, just like my peers did. Um, but Patricia, she also, you know, you also had a different experience. Yeah, and that's an, another one of the reasons why, like, we haven't talked about imposter syndrome because there's so many layers to it, and it's also depending on the gravity of how you've experienced, um, like, academics, and especially as you're navigating, depending on the college that you go to, and all these other experiences that you've had, especially in terms of like self-esteem or just the kind of advice or the treatment that you have gotten through K through twelve. Uh, really depends on like how you end up going into college, um, especially when it comes to, you know, this common phrase that you often hear, it's like fake it till you make it, but then because you're faking it so much, then it really becomes, you know, really hard to understand where the lines are blurring, where you really are faking and you just, by the chance you feel like you're lucky that you somehow made it. Um, or the fact that um, I've seen a ton of students also feel like they're, because they're going on such a huge survival mode, that it just happens to feel like you really didn't earn it. Like it was some order, some sort of outside factors and some people may have felt, you know, pity on you or whatever the case that, you know, somehow you made it well. 
for me, um, same thing as Ariana, like I haven't really felt so much imposter syndrome, like, like in its entirety, I, you know, approach college as more like I, if I knew if I had the skills and I can do it, it's not the fact that I can't do it. Um, and it's also the fact that I wouldn't want to do it in the same way that, you know, professionals have been telling me to do it because it doesn't work for, um, like, especially minoritized students, just the strategies that we common hear about, like, here's how you're supposed to advise students. Here's how we're supposed to do all these like initiatives. It just didn't feel right either way, but, um, it can, uh, imposter syndrome can, can come up in different assets of your academic life. So you may feel that you maybe can't make it to do research or some sort of skill that may be not entirely as a college student, but maybe some sort of asset of your work or academic life where you feel it's significantly hard to see yourself in it um, and also to see yourself thrive in that aspect. Um, so for me, it, it hasn't been, again, you feel kind of intimidated maybe in some sort of things, but it doesn't mean that for me, I didn't feel like I could make it. I think it's just a natural, you know, progression of like life transitions. But um, when it comes to, you know, meeting with students, definitely imposter syndrome is huge. And, and I've seen it a lot with a, a different, especially with professors, once they come up to never like the new ranks or new life experiences, they really feel like they're not doing it right, or they're not doing it in the way that, you know, people previously to their position have done it. So, um, Maria, tell us about, especially as you're, you're uh, commonly working with uh, first-generation stressors and anxiety, how do you see the self, not only as yourself, but also like maybe the clients or the people that you're, you're interacting with? Yeah, and I, I, I want to just, um, you know, add a little bit to the fake it till you make it, right? I think that it's something that you often hear. And you even, I, I don't know about y'all, but I heard that from even just mentors or from my friends and supports, right? Like, fake it till you make it, like you got this kind of situation. Um, and, and I think that when we're talking about the imposter syndrome, right, it, it I think it's also important to understand that this is, it's, it can be a sensitive topic, right? Because it, it, it requires you to be vulnerable, right? Um, with people and, and share those experiences. But when I, I actually work with a lot of um, adolescents and a lot of them happen to be the first one going to college. So I'm able to, you know, be that support and understand those, you know, those first generation stressors or those challenges or those first steps, right? That you're taking um, that maybe someone in your home has not, um, and so therefore you don't have anyone to model that. And a, and a lot of the time, a lot of these um, clients that I'm working with, you know, they're telling me how hard they're having to to work um, in school compared to their, you know, their counterparts and and making it. Um, I mean, I have students who who you know constantly are really just anxious about the way that they write and the grammar and, 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 and being, you know, enough to be able to even, I, I quote, qualify for a school or, you know, be able to have that GPA that they need. Um, and, and it's, off, it's often the, the conversation of imposter syndrome that we're having in, in our sessions and we're talking about, you know, that this is a real thing that a lot of us experience, especially when we're those first ones making those, you know, those, those breakthroughs in our family. Um, 
but it's it's a constant thing that I do here and I um, a lot of the times I do have to remind them you know you're not alone there's mentors you might not see them you know at the school but we're out there and we're willing to support you and guide you in that direction um, but it, it's definitely a very vulnerable conversation that we have to have in in sessions yeah and especially um, we I recently had posted on our um, uh, Instagram page, um, this like TikTok series of this person that was talking a lot about imposter syndrome, especially um, they work in, I believe in um, kind of like the, um, like a firm or something, like I forget what it's actually called, but um, corporations, like they probably work in a corporation office or something like that. But what was interesting about what they said, um, and the TikTok at is uh, Fem Home Ec. So it's F-E-M-H-O-M-E-E-C. And they talked a lot about really where the imposter syndrome is coming from is like, what are the voices in the, in the, you know, the stories that people have painted you about not just yourself, but also the things that you're trying to strive to do. And so, especially in terms of like mental health therapists and the work that you're doing, like it's probably coming in from like all these students hearing, like, what are some of the teachers saying to them? What are some of the things that they're hearing from their parents? What are the stories that we have in our families with what happened to that cousin or that attempted for the first time to do something different that the, maybe the family hadn't approved and your fear in doing something completely different, you know, and stepping out of your comfort zone. Um, and especially when it comes to, you know, the voices that we hear from our family and the people who we grew up with um, really paints the picture. And I mean, I've heard the whole phrase, fake it till you make it, even in a lot of my high school classes where it was just like, you just going through the motions, but not really thinking and reflecting, is this really what I want to do? Is this how I want to do it? And is there another way to do it that feels more authentic to myself and also honors, you know, the values that I have? in what I just, I'm striving to do long-term. Um, and the hard part of like high, the high school stage and even community college where it's really hard for us to kind of step out of your you know, comfort zone and uh, do something that feels authentic. Like it's so hard to be vulnerable and just say and admit to people, I actually have a passion for this. I want to do this. I actually want to do well in college, even if I feel like I'm being called a nerd, a geek or whatever the label is. And then, you know, how it shows up in grad school even more so because now you're, you're now you're talking a whole different level of here's the skills that you need to pull to become now a different kind of professional where you're really trying to specialize into something. So tell us about your thoughts in any of this, like where you know, especially as you're working with community and whole like family systems, you know, what do you, what do you tell a student, especially for if they're for the first time experiencing this or they're experiencing this as they're navigating college? Yeah, so I think my role as a therapist is to validate a lot, right? To listen and to validate those experiences that they're having because those, those thoughts and ideas, right? In, in you know, the therapeutic world, we call them cognitive distortions, right? And these are distortions that are um, messages that either we've heard growing up from our parents, from our, you know, from our, our siblings, from our teachers or whoever it is, right? Over time, there's this expectation that's being developed of this is who you should be, or this is what you will become, or this is who you are. Um, so those are cognitive distortions that we have this idea, right? That again, 
that this is what I'm supposed to be. And it's either that I'm there and I don't recognize my achievements or it's either that I'm not there and I'm faking until I make it kind of situation, right? Um, but a, a lot of the times when I am working with those, um, those clients who are first generation, we, I really just take the time to validate that and share um, when it is appropriate, right? My experience and understanding that, you know, what they're going through and what they're navigating through, um, it's, it shows their strength and how resilient they are. And usually I try not to use the word resilient because I have mixed feelings about that word, but really understanding how they are paving that way for generations, right? And as, as people who, and, you know, for myself, like I have to remind myself, like I don't have someone, well, I didn't have someone, right? To um, help me navigate, navigate those, those difficult times um, it wasn't until I am now in this as, as a profession, as a professional, right, that I have those supports for me. But even during those times, it can be difficult. Um, but a lot of validation, a lot of working through those messages and replacing them with um, with with logical messages and, and those logical thoughts and evidence based, like actually this look, look where you are now um, and reinforcing that for them is, is important. And, and helping them change their way of thinking. Um, but when I'm also working with parents is, is explaining to them, you know, I know that sometimes it's really easy for parents to kind of come from a place of like, you know, well, all they have to do is worry about school, right? But it's not just worrying about school. There's, it's a whole nother culture that they're having to navigate. And so helping the parents understand what their child is going through and what they may have to go through um, going off to college. And so I'm also being that support to the parent and helping them understand and helping them understand how messages, right, that, you know, maybe we just say so, you know, lovely, right, in a loving way, um, can also have an impact on someone's way of thinking of themselves. So I'm also working with the parents to, to help them change their choice of words when they are communicating with their child. Especially when we're talking about, you know, first generation anything, right? It, it's been interesting to see so many adults be parentified children and the fact that a lot of them are dealing with a lot of mental health, you know, you know, either topics or challenges right when they hit college. That's when a lot of things bring up for them because they are in a whole new space uh, to start reflecting and start thinking and comparing themselves to a lot of their peers that like how, what are they navigating with and what are they lacking in, in terms of how they're being perceived, perceived and perceiving themselves, um, especially with a lot of them thinking that, you know, I, I don't have, I'm not good enough because of this and this and this, because my peer has to deal with this and this and this, as opposed to thinking I have a lot on my plate already. The fact that I'm doing this and school and whatever else is huge. Um, and I, I want you to like, you know, dive in more of like, why aren't, don't you like the word resilient for any of our listeners who are not caught up with, you know, why resilient or describing students as resilient, especially minoritized students is, you know, some sort of complex and problematic. Yeah. So for me, I'm going to speak for myself, right? Um, because it's this expectation that we're supposed to be resilient, right? Like, because we've gone through X, Y, and Z, that we must be really strong. 
Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on someone because we all deal with our, our own issues and our own mental health in a different way. And it's almost like, because you are a brown woman, right? You're most likely to be resilient because you were, you know, taking care of your siblings, you were working, you were a provider, whatever you were doing. So I think for me, when it comes to the word resilient is like, but like, do I have to be? Like, why can I just be strong? Why can I just be this person? And so it's almost when I think of the word resilience, it's almost like this expectation. It's like expected for people to, to be that. Um, so I have mixed signal, like mixed emotions, sorry about, about that word. It's like saying like, you have to have the strength to aguantar lo que sea. Like, mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, why does this person have to be put in this struggle, you know, like, place like why why do they have to struggle in order to be strong you know as opposed to because there's there's a historic tie to the struggle with these groups of people that we don't associate white people with like exactly. white people don't have to struggle I mean they could call the struggle in their beginning origin story but that's like for a second and then they move on to thriving yeah no I remember like I mean I'm a therapist and I strongly believe and and still going to therapy um, and I, I do that by taking care of myself. But there's this idea, right? And, and I remember just like telling my therapist, like, why do I have to be strong? Like, yes, I appreciate everything that I've learned through this struggle and through everything that I had to go through. But like, why? Like, I don't think people understand like how difficult it is to be resilient every day and waking up and having to be that and not having a choice to say, screw it, right? Um, it's it's a lot it's a lot of pressure and i and i hear that from from a lot of the clients that i work with of having to tell me and and when we dive through those messages many of them express to me it's like well it's the expectation that i don't i don't want to let my parents down you know they work so hard to to provide and and and, and everything they they gave up in their dream that their dream is for their child to become a doctor um, you know, to become a warrior, whatever it is. So it's, it's this, it's the struggle between wanting to be what they want and what they can at that time and what their parents want them to be. Um, so it, yeah, it all ties in. Definitely. I was thinking about that as you were all like talking about, um, where it can come from. Right. And I'm thinking like, I, maybe, uh, imposter syndrome translates to um, fear of failure, right? Because we don't have the tools to succeed right right off, you know, off the bat. And also, um, and also, I think expectations from our parents, right? And you know, setting the bar for our siblings and being that, you know, all caretaker, uh, wanting that, you know, having that responsibility of success, but also not knowing how to do it. Uh, might be like a, what you said, what was the word again? Cognitive? Cognitive distortions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it definitely is that it's that fear of failure. Um, the fear that you won't make it or that you're going to disappoint a community um, of people that are cheering for you. And that's a, that's, that's a big, <laughs> that's, that's a lot. And I've been there and, and I, I get it. And I think that at some point I had to learn to just, you know what, like 
I'm the one paying for college. I'm the one doing this. Like, I got to, you know, my parents are not going to be disappointed. And they weren't. They weren't disappointed. Um, you know, I, I, I think at the end of the day, what they wanted was for their child to just do well and be independent. And, um, you know, there's struggles. There's struggles through that. But they, there has never been a time that they've mentioned to me that they're disappointed. I think if anything, they were super proud when I handed them over that degree. Um, and I tell that to, to my kids, um, I call them my kids, all that they're clients, right? Um, every time, like you're rocking it, you're doing the best that you can and you, you gotta do this for yourself at the end of the day. And the fact that most of us, you know, especially if you head to the graduate level, we keep hearing this whole, well, I'm the only one in here or you're gonna be one of the very few blank. and you have to, you know, have the sense that this degree and, and your position is going to come in and save lives and, and that you have to come in and repair the damages of histories and you kind of come back and do this savior community, you know, like you're going to do all these huge things. And, and the fact that it's unfortunate that we feel that we're the only ones because maybe, you know, within our family units, it might be, you know, that, that that's the real you know, reality that maybe you're the one of the, one of the only cousins or the only child, the only whatever. But I think once we kind of connect with people on a national and global level, you're not the only one, you know, because in our country of origin, there are some people that go to college, you know, so in, in terms of, you know, blank group of people not having degrees is not true. Although class is a huge impediment for that and gender and, and race and ethnicity, but and oftentimes you will probably find one other person is the, the fact that we are in silos and oftentimes in terms of state-wise, like you may not see yourself as much, um, but it's like changing myself in terms of the representation matters conversation is like switching more towards who is representing my politic, who's really sharing the liberation of what we want in this blank field, right? Because ultimately you find a lot more solidarity within politic than probably representation. As we've seen this past year, representation isn't gonna fully save you. Um, and oftentimes in terms of leadership, it doesn't. Because again, their, their role isn't a whole different thing than you yourself doing this in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's quite interesting, especially when it comes to finding mental health therapists that, you know, are able to holistically view you as your whole self with along a lot of these social justice issues and try to challenge the families too, you know, like challenging their thinking and, and trying to push them to, you know, be the better self or the better version of themselves that they're striving to, to work on. Yeah. You know, I, I work with, um, I work with a lot of women too, especially those um, women who are in, in domestic violence or who have been. Um, and during our course of, of therapy, some of them expressed to me, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing or I'm not living my full life and my potential. And this is when you know they have three children and I always tell them it's never too late for you to find out who that person is. You know, who, who was this person before to enter this relationship, who is this person before they had children? And, and if you didn't learn, right, because you, for some reason you were taught, right, that the idea that your partner's supposed to be in, in control and define who you are and, and whatnot, 
and then let's figure out who that person is. And I've had um, several clients who've gone back to school, right, and 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 are learning English and are doing what they need to do. Um, but you do also see that that imposter syndrome at times with um, older uh, older adults in, in their work setting. And when they tell me that, you know, sometimes I'm afraid of failing or I'm afraid of making mistakes. Those are all symptoms that can, you know, come from 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 um, the imposter syndrome. Um, but again, it, it, you know, there's, it's not a diagnosis. It, it's a it's a form of anxiety. Um, that's how I describe it. But um, yeah, it's, it's very real. And, um, you know, we work through that in therapy. Um, I guess um, another curiosity that I have, um, and maybe our listeners might also have, is regarding um, your interest in mental health therapy and how did you choose this, these specific topics like first gen uh, stressors, anxiety, depression, ADHD, PTSD, domestic violence, and postpartum depression? So I always said, always, I am not going to do clinical work, will not be a therapist. Um, I, again, I think that's the beauty about social work is that you can decide what route you're going to take. My job, like my dream job was to be an advocate and organize in the community um, for farm workers. And I got that job right in, in Washington, DC, and I was doing my thing and it just didn't feel right. And so um, where I'm currently working at, at a, at a nonprofit, um, we, I, I did my um, undergrad internship there. And so I was able to come back and it's, it just happened to be that, that the population that I was working with, right. Um, Spanish speaking and Latinos, those are kind of the, the major um, stressors or diagnoses that are being seen um, with that specifically population. Again, these are just more of the common ones. Um, and so you know, with first generation, I'm able to relate to that and be able to represent that and, 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 and see that with a lot of the adolescents, as well as anxiety and depression. Um, ADHD, it's, again, it's something that we don't talk a lot about our community. Um, and, and again, the, the research for it is also very recent and, you know, the, the misconceptions of taking medication. Um, but then also there's the, the post-traumatic stress disorder and the you know, the trauma that we live as, you know, as um, Latinos, it's, it's there, it's real. Um, you know, I didn't realize that I lived trauma until, you know, as I got older and I was like, oh my gosh, like that, that was all traumatic and who's to define what is trauma? You know, if I can define it as trauma and it had an impact in my life, then that's what it is. Um, and so I, I remind that to a lot of my clients as well, like you, you encounter trauma, um, and then again, domestic violence, you know, we, we know where that comes from and the machismo that is also associated with that. Um, and postpartum depression, again, that's often seen with a lot of women. And um, a lot of the times um, as women, we're taught that we're supposed to be the provider, we're supposed to be strong and there's no room to take care of ourselves. There's no room for those emotions, right? Um, but it's very, very real. And so we work through that, but I think it all just kind of like, you know, just surfaced as I was working with with um, with clients, and 
I've realized that those are the ones that I feel more strong and have more strength and I'm able to seek out more of a continuing education for me to be able to work um, with those specific, you know, stressors of diagnosis. Yeah, and today I, well, I was um, finishing up some work notes and listening to post um, IGTV lives. I was watching Angelica Becerras, which is one of the co-hosts of Ansal Doing It podcast. And they were talking a lot about Caso Cerrado or, or no, Cosas de la Vida Real and how oftentimes, like if no one had ever seen that, like if, if you're a person who didn't grow up with Casos de la Vida Real or you wouldn't have known how traumatic and even like La Rosa de Guadalupe, they like super romanticize and paint trauma in such a different way to the point that it gets so normalized. Mm. Um, and the fact that it's like, we're constantly living in fear that if we step outside the door, like, some tragedy is about to happen in that we're all going to get kidnapped and we're all going to get all this stuff or oftentimes, it, you know, it is true. There is huge gendered violence um, anywhere. Um, and so, but it, it doesn't paint the picture of like, okay, how do we liberate ourselves from that trauma and how oftentimes we're just like, you know, you, you don't recognize and identify how trauma works and how oftentimes we just live with imposter syndrome and just are like, yes, we're gonna have it. And then now in academia, it's like, it's all normalized. Like I, I keep hearing, especially within the past two years, imposter syndrome has been such a big topic, but no one follows up of, okay, so what's the next? You know, like you can talk about it, you can have space, you can give platforms about it, but how are we gonna, then why is it so normalized for some of us to have it? And then what are we gonna actually do to like confront the fact that, why is this so prevalent for us? Yeah, I believe very strongly in um, generational trauma. Um, and, tr and, and I also hear the word a lot, generational wealth. And when I, I think of the word generational wealth, right, I also think of it just not just being money, but also being physically, emotionally, uh, mentally healthy. Like that to me is wealth. And, and being to being able to work through that generational trauma and being able to say like enough is enough like this is going to stop here with me and I'm not going to continue um, that type of cycle that within itself can be a lot of work and very exhausting but also very rewarding um, and I see that a lot and you know I'm I'm, I'm working through that myself but it's um, it's, you know, you're definitely categorized as the black sheep at times because you're the one that, you know, you're being the la rebelde and you're, you, what are you doing? Um, why are you causing trouble? Like, just leave it alone. Um, but again, I think it goes back to being your authentic self and how can you live your most authentic life? Um, and when you get there, it's like, it's probably the best feeling and you just, you know, te vale lo que digan. Um, and so it, it, you come to a place of being at peace with yourself. And I think that for me, that's when I think of, of generational wealth is being able to get there um, or close to it, right? And, and breaking those, those, um, those chains that keep us attached to those, you know, those um, beliefs and values that are not working for us. Maybe it worked, you know, for our, you know, grandmothers or our parents, but it, it's not working for us and, that, and that's okay. Definitely. I think that's something about that we have to do as um, first gen individuals um, 
to relearn some of the things that we, you know, grew up living in, right? That we thought was normal. It they really aren't. And that's something that I'm trying to teach my mom as well. It's like just because you've lived like this for these many years, it doesn't mean that it's normal or that it's okay, you know. Um, but just um to um just before we close, um, the last question um that I'd like to pose would be um if you could talk about how does social work differentiate itself from clinical psychology for mm -hmm. any of our listeners who may be curious about the two different fields? So I'm not too familiar with um, clinical psychology. I do have a, uh, one of my coworkers major in psychology, um, but what's and from what I from what it seems like you're very focused on just the clinical aspect of it, right? The, the therapeutic part. When it comes to social work, it's like you're everywhere. And if your interest is, you know, you can become a therapist. If you want to be a caseworker, if you want to work, um, you know, um, in the policy aspect of it, then you're there. If you want to do the business aspect and work at a hospital, then you're there. If you want to work for social services, then you can do that as well. Um, it, the jobs is just the skills that you're gaining to work with people and understand, understanding, right, um, societal factors that are contributing to it or how they continue to oppress people. It's, 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 it's the nice thing about social work. You're able to kind of just see people from a very different lens and from multiple lenses versus just from that one place. So again, going back to seeing people as a whole, um, it's, it's the nice thing about social work. But again, you know, there's this um, requirement that you have with, you know, as a social worker that, you know, whenever you see something that is injustice, like you call it out and you, and you do something about it, right? We're very proactive people. We don't just call it out. Like what's, what's the call, you know, um, the, the action that we need to do here. Um, and, you know, we're working with, with the resources available and, and where the person is. Yeah. And to um, finish off, is there any last pieces of advice or anything that you'd like to share with us, especially if there's any, you know, if any future social workers or anything that you'd want to talk about, like, what is something that you would give advice to any of our listeners? I think that I will use that, this platform um, to just briefly acknowledge that therapy um, there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to therapy, right? And it's just, again, I'll quote, you know, son para locos, therapies for, you know, for people that are not stable and therapies for everyone. There's different reasons why people go to therapy um, and therapy is just, it's supposed to be a place for you to be able to feel safe and talk about things that are causing you stress or are contributing to um, any emotions that are not there daily and to help you sort out through some of those messages or ideas and help you replace them. So, you know, again, it might take, you know, two to three therapists until you find the right one for yourself. And I strongly just encourage people to do that and take that step. Um, and, and, and remember that you're investing in yourself. Um, that there is hope out there and, and someone to guide you and help you during those difficult times. And I say that because COVID has been very difficult for a lot of us. And I know that we're at this point that the financial stresses and everything else that may come along with that. Um, I know that the, the numbers of depression and anxiety are definitely increasing. And so 
um, if, if this is the, the takeaway that you take from the podcast is, you know, take care of yourself. And then if any of the listeners wanted to follow up or find you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so they can um, shoot me an email, um, Mireya underscore Lupercio at alumni.unc.org. Um, I also have a Instagram that I will pull up my name. People can follow me. It's Raya, R-A-Y underscore A-H-H-H. And that's how also, the email is Mireya underscore, uh, underscore Lupercio at alumni.unc.edu, right? Not org. Yeah, sorry. D- yep, .edu. That's right. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Mireya, for joining us in the session. It was really nice to have another guest that we've met through social media uh, to come in and talk yeah. to us about this really important topic. Yes, thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to... This week's BIPOC business shout out is Cadena Collective. You can find their clothing, jewelry, handbag, bath and body accessories at cadenacollective.com. And they are about merging their worlds to bring the best of their bicultural experience. This is a first generation college graduate and a war veteran products. of the risk their parents took to create a new life in an an unknown country. Please check them out. They are co-founded by Ale and May. And again, you can find them at cadenacollective.com. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicana code switchers at gmail.com and send us your poc business conference and event shout outs and listener letters you could also record a listener message on anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes follow us on instagram at chicana code switchers and on twitter at x code switchers if you would like to support this podcast you can venmo or cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you and don't forget, switch the code, don't let the code switch you. <laughs>